coming up tonight on the Big Footy Podcast. We talk all about the winners and losers from round one. We talk about the upsets. We talk about the big winners. We've got Prosecutor in to talk about Essendon. And later on in the extra, we talk to Ian W. all about GWS and how they're coming along. All this and more coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Big Footy Podcast for the regular season of 2014. And with me, I have a huge crew tonight, uh, the valuable Mike from the Western Bulldogs. Good evening, everyone. And like uh, words from the famous Big Kev with footy back, I'm excited. And also with me, I have the veteran uh, returning again for this time this season to no doubt endure our slings and arrows, uh, the veteran prosecutor. You know, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. 2014 already, eh, boys? <laughs> and joining us for the first time on the Big Footy Podcast and talking all things GWS with us tonight, we have Ian W. Welcome, Ian. Good evening, and uh, G-Man's nine-year contract has been confirmed by the AFL. Excellent. So, look, it's been a big week in football. Um, lots of wins that people weren't expecting. Um, I don't know if anyone picked all four winners for the weekend. How'd you go with your tips, guys? I did... Oh, I was off to a positive start. Tipped Fremantle, I believe, and then it was all downhill from there with um, the Giants' upset win. Um, Gold Coast, I thought Richmond would actually get over their incompetence, but, you know... Something's never changed, no matter how much they think they will. And uh, Port Adelaide, I'm firmly on the bandwagon there now, but I tip Carlton, unfortunately. Mm. What about you, Mike? Same. Uh, well, actually, I tipped uh, Gold Coast up there at uh, on the Sunshine Coast. There, I, I always thought they'd be in with a good chance, and mm. they do play well up there. But uh, unfortunately, your boys let me down on Sunday night, and um, so did Collingwood and. Uh, and uh, Sydney, so uh, not a great weekend in terms of footy tipping, but let's hope with the next uh, part of the split round I can catch up. I didn't tip at all. I don't do tipping anymore. It's It confuses me, and I forget to do it half the time. I mean, oh, if, if, if you can't choice. rely on Rich Bate Gold Coast, what can you rely on? Exactly. It's like it's a <laughs> modern-day certainty, isn't it? It's the modern-day um, globetrotters over the generals. You've got to think, though, they thought they dodged it when they stopped playing them up at Kazali Stadium. And now they're going to Metricon. The tradition lives on. Exactly. <laughs> that was my consolation from the weekend. My team may have lost, but Richmond still lost as well. And so Rich, did Collingwood. Stan Collingwood and, lost. It's, and let's face it's it. It's not too bad to be Carlton. If there's one thing Carlton people can live with, we can lose to every other team in the comp as long as everyone else that we hate loses as well. And we only Isn't hate three North or four Melbourne, other teams. Uh, methodology? No, North Melbourne's methodology is to like win until three quarter time and then lose. So does that still mean, Jason, that Carlton succeeded in derailing Richmond's uh, start by proxy? I like to think so. I like to think we had a hand in it. But I mean, like they say, the irony is this week all four losers play off each other in some sort of combination. Uh, Collingwood play someone, and Carlton play Richmond. <laughs> I don't care who Colin oh, I play. guess that's one way of looking at it. And ladies and gentlemen, we're joined by Seppo, who is fashionably late. Good evening, Seppo. 
Uh, thanks to be here, and uh, can't wait to get into this now I'm here. Excellent. How did your tipping go on the weekend, Mark? Um, apparently I got four, but uh, realistically I actually got three out of the four. Um, did tick Freo, didn't get the GWS one, but I tipped Gold Coast and Port. I saw them coming. Excellent. All right, so we're going to move on a little bit. What was your uh, we get your highlights from the weekend? Um, to date, I guess, since we're only halfway through the round. and uh, I'll do Ian last because he's a GWS man, and I'll do Seppo uh, second last because he's a Freo man. But for the guys that had no stake in the weekend, uh, Prosecutor, what was your highlight from the weekend? Now, being a nested man, I always like it when Carlton loses, but I do love it when we've got a team like Port Adelaide filled with the young talent they do, especially Chad Wingard. What's not to like about them? It was just fantastic to sit them, uh, to just sit back, watch them, and see that you know 2013 might not be second year, or well, 2014 might not be second year Blues. Fair call. And uh, Mike, your Bulldogs played this weekend, but what was your uh, highlight from last weekend? I think it'd have to be basically, uh, even though it was Richmond, just seeing where Gold Coast are coming and how quickly they're moving along and how how impressive they're starting to look. And um, yeah, props to the young uh, GWS guys and our old uh, our old friend Callum Ward. He's uh, going leaps and bounds there, and uh, it was very impressive to see Mr. Uh, Mr. Patton um, making his mark too. So. I predict a big year for Patton if he can hold out with injuries and uh, he'll be uh, a really good uh, key position forward coming through. Excellent. And Seppo, Frio had a good win on the uh, weekend first up. Uh, what was your highlight from the weekend? Though? Um, probably at the end of the game, a result that actually saw us on the top of the ladder for the first time ever in our history. Um, it's, it's pretty good to be sitting on the top there still, so... Um, I actually went in the game thinking we might grind out a, a low-scoring 20 to 30-point win, but uh, win by 70 points was fantastic. And the fact that we've done that off a pretty rusty pre-season where meltdowns were occurring after losing to the Eagles twice, it was great to see they just flipped the switch on and came right out there. Excellent, Ian. Your uh, GWS they uh, they came up with the first-round win against uh, the Swans, their hometown rivals. What was your highlight from the weekend? I was actually working when the game happened, but just picking up my phone and realising that we'd won by six goals and then going through the game afterwards and going, oh my God, this is what it could be. They ran out four Patton was a beast. Um, Green was, you know, a physically intimidating monster. Um... There was run, there was carry, there was tackling. If you'd have flipped around the scores, would all be saying, good game by the Giants, they put three quarters in it, but then got overrun in the last. It'll maybe be next year, but it would have been a respectable game. But this was the game where the Giants made a statement as a footy team. Well, what, why don't we talk about the games on the weekend then, very briefly, because were, uh, there were some, big, uh, were some big upsets and things like that. And for that, I need to consult certain websites. Uh, Collingwood versus Fremantle, uh, a 60, 70-point win in the end. Um, did anyone see this coming, other than Seppo? Uh, I, think we saw, I think we saw Fremantle persisting on from next year, but I don't think we saw the, um, the despair, I guess, from Collingwood coming that, I guess, that early and that... Um, I guess that badly. It was 
they really got opened up and they looked so competitive in the first quarter where you thought the game was an even balance and then Fremantle just flipped the switch and it was all gone. Fremantle just coasted. What, what, what about you, Seppo? From your perspective, how did Freo go? Um, well, like I said, yeah, it was a, a rusty run in and I really thought that... Um, well, previously I thought White and Reed inclusion would really have made this a, a 50-50 game, but you could just see that... Oh, I thought it might have been Cloak that he, in fact, was kept pretty quiet that was um, going to be the way we were going to win the game, but it was just our midfield that, um, even though we were losing the clearances, the way we just sort of pushed the ball forward effectively without blazing too too far away, um, we definitely hurt them. And, and guys like Daniel Pierce, you know, second-string guys that really put on a clinic and... I think he had 10 inside 50s or something like that was um, great to see. And I think really Collingwood on their day, I think they just um, had a bad start. We you know, match them up again against other sides and get more of their best 22 out there. They're certainly stretching their back line. I expected um, Michael Walters to dominate a bit more. Ballantyne had a good game. But, um, yeah, they're certainly um, far off their best, I think. I was going to say, uh, the media were singing the praises of Ballantyne after the game. He kicked three goals. Um, he was uh, basically named first on the in the in the best of list for Fremantle. Was his game that good? Um, I'd say it was an okay from game. It was an acceptable game. It wasn't really. I, I wouldn't put him in the best. Um, I'd probably give my votes to more um, Sandlands, Daniel Pierce, Fife, McFarlane for keeping Cloak goalless, um, and Daniel Pierce. So there's yeah, a lot of probably. Um, a pressure put on Ballantyne to perform. He never really performs well away, so it was good for him to actually hit the scoreboard and, and work like he did. But um, certainly wasn't his best game ever. Look, from a neutral uh, from a neutral supporter perspective, I thought that uh, Ballantyne just did his job, and um, even Sandlands to a point, without being a major influence, he was good in the ruck. But I think Fife and uh, Fife and Hill are what really made the game, especially Fife through the middle. He's the one where the drive came through. And uh, also, um, let's not forget about Pav as well. I think Pav had a good game, although his scoreboard didn't represent that, but he was very, very uh, instrumental across the half-forward line and presenting opportunities there. So so if I was to give my three votes, it would definitely go to Fife for that game. Okay. Now, Sanderlands, he had a good return. Um, is, is he going to be able to continue that formal season, Seppo? I certainly think so. He's had a full pre-season. Everyone sort of puts a tag on him. Yeah, he's going to break down. And everyone sort of questioned why uh, Mike Sheehan rated him so highly in his top 10. But really, if he stays like that, he's fit. As long as he doesn't get arms and legs and everything's thrown at him into these ruck contests. And he'll certainly cop a lot of um, attention. But I think he can certainly go this year. And we've got a, a plethora of backup ruckmen to partner up with him and give him a good chop out so we, we had Hanneth out there which is a sort of a third or fourth choice ruckman but we've got Clark and Griffin and Kepler Bradley and even um Gumbleton when he gets back as options to sort of match up with him so um it's it I think he's going to be dominant like that I expected him to actually go more against young Grundy and, and Wits out there I think he only got 39 hit outs but he's certainly um presence around the ground is going to be valuable and um, I just hope he's there and gets all the way through to September. So he signed a, a year extension to his contract, so he's going right to the end of 2015. How much did Collingwood miss Shaw? Well, they're mm-hmm. missing small defenders in general. And oh. they're forced to play Maxwell and Marty Clark was their biggest downfall. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't go with... Um, actually, no, that would have made it worse if they'd gone with Quinton Lynch. 
Oh yeah, he's still a thing, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> All right. They are hurting. I think Collingwood uh, is really hurting without Shaw. I think he's that, a big hole in defence. Yeah, but it's just they just they've just lost a whole level of depth not having them, uh, not having him here, and he he would have matched up on Ballantyne, oh, yeah, in sure. my opinion. Surely Nick Maxwell can carry it all down there. <laughs> oh, of course. I got a lot of time for Nick Maxwell. And uh, whatever his name is, Lombarda. Lombarda, that's right, Mr. Lombarda. Lombarda. All right, so on to, the, on to the next game then. And uh, we'll talk about Gold Coast and Richmond. Um, how did How did you guys see that game in particular? Given that Ablett wasn't apparently the best on ground and still had a lazy 41 touches. Yeah, it was a really even performance by the Suns, which is always a sign of a good year coming up when they can outclass a good team like that and not rely on Ablett to drag them over the line. Sure, Ablett would get probably two votes. He'd probably get three votes still. He had that much of a good game. But, you know, it was a much more even performance, which is always a positive step towards in their future. I think the biggest thing for me watching that game was how good their second string is becoming. They're actually becoming a more mature and fitter side. Like they had um, really good second stringers out there underneath Ablett. Uh, they lost Jack Martin, who was looking like to be a likely type in the first few minutes. They also lost Dixon, I think, halfway through the game to that concussion. So they've still got, you know, Bennell to come back into the side and Bach and some others. So they're, they're going to look really good when they um, start to string it together. It's, it's hard to say how good they'll become, but... Um, you know, their key position players aren't really crash hot, but they've certainly got a very good midfield. Yeah, I think you raised a pretty good point there with key position players, in particular the forward line. Um, I don't think Charlie Dixon's quite cut out to be that dominant forward that they need. They probably, if they have the cap space, they probably have to go after, a, I guess, uh, the equivalent of Mitch Clark with Melbourne a few years ago, and then hope obviously they stay on the park, but um, I think they have to go after a free agent um, to fill that gap in the forward line that is so obvious when compared to their midfield. And it's funny they weren't active in the trade period last year because it was probably their biggest deficiency that everyone could see what they need and yet they didn't go for anyone like that. So I don't know if they've got someone hidden in the wings or on the rookie list ready to come in and break onto the scene, but it's certainly their biggest downfall that will probably stop them winning a few key games. Well, the problem that you have to... The problem they have there as well is that they're limited by what's actually available and gettable. I mean, last year there was Lance Franklin, but, I mean, you're not going to match what Sydney offered. But without looking at this year's free agent list or, you know, gettable players, it might be this year might be a better time to actually bring someone in. I think um, uh, Gold Coast are going to make the eight this year. I, I don't... I know no one else is favouring that really, but um, I think they're definitely they're a candidate for the eighth spot. Eight. I certainly think they're around the mark. They'll probably miss out maybe on percentage or something like that. You can certainly throw them into that mm. middle group, like it was at the end of last year where you've opened up to about six teams ready for that last spot. I think you can just throw Gold Coast into the mix because they will be in and around the mark. What, what, what yeah, do... If you take Hawthorne and Freo as being the class of the comp at the moment, I think there's a real question for positions six, not just for, you know, seven to 12 like it was last year. I really think that there's a, there's a top bracket and there's a bottom bracket and there's somebody else in the middle. 
I think you've also got to take in mind as well that like we say the Gold Coast are a potential top eight finisher this year. Um, that means you've got teams who are just coming into their prime now. So, for instance, your North Melbournes, Richmonds, Essendons, um, Carlton's, even Port Adelaide, who are going to come, who have got pretty much this year, maybe next year, to really try and make the most of this window before Gold Coast and GWS coming over the top and um, really uh, take away all those years of development when you've got these, you know, super sites almost that could just. Um, Make the next five, six years of total write-off. Mm, I'm sure. Rich, saying, saying that, guys, who's going to make way for Gold Coast this year if that is the case? Well, sides like Richmond Carlton. and Carlton losing these type of games are really going to free up their spots because that could be the difference at the end of the year. If Richmond and Carlton are going to lose the sides like they did in the weekend, that will be the difference of where they finish. If they do a couple of those, like North Melbourne, the way they choked, if it happens again, there goes their spot. I think it's going to be a raffle between fourth and. You know, anywhere down to twelfth. If any, if last year's any indication, yeah. Um, sure. I I just don't see any of those being able to like. If, if anyone loses those games against that mid-level team, like everyone's expecting to beat like the St Kilda's and the Western Bulldogs, and I hate Bruce to say King. it, but everyone was expecting to beat GWS. I mean, it, GWS if they can start winning, it throws everybody into a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a spiral. Well. The um the rumours swirling around during the off season is that Paul Roos has really got Melbourne shit together, for lack of a better term. Um, apparently he's brought in place. I hate to use the buzz term, but he's brought in structures not on the field, but within the club. So where every person knows what their roles are. For instance, the person whose job it is to put the hats out knows what their job is. Uh, whereas previously there was that sort of anarchy under Mark Neal, and also he has um. He's all about positive reinforcement, whereas in uh, Melbourne teams of the past have been sort of the real critical and blame game. So I reckon we'll see a better Melbourne this year, just purely on all the whispers I've heard. I think Melbourne St Kilda could tell a lot as well, and I think uh, St Kilda might be in a lot of trouble this year. And not just this year, I think my um, my stance in St Kilda has been pretty well known, but I think it'll be telling for both teams. I think if Melbourne... I think do we both do we all remember um, Port Adelaide v Melbourne a couple of years ago where Port oh it was last year where Port really um, got the kickstart to their season against That's Melbourne. Round one, I think. Yeah, it was. exactly. Yeah, and I think season. I think we could see a similar thing with um, Melbourne on the um, the good side of it this year against St Kilda, but I also raise questions against St Kilda because St Kilda have um, GWS is it next week. Uh, uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, and then after that, and then it's. And then, it's and, then um, and then St Kilda don't play Melbourne again. They won't play GWS again. St Kilda, oh, I know we're sort of steering off the topic here, but I think St Kilda on the top of GWS and Melbourne really need to start the season strongly. Otherwise, they could be left behind by both of those teams. I think, I think St Kilda have been unilaterally tipped to uh, finish on for the spoon this year. We're going to move on to the next game, though, and that's the GWS v Swans game. And... Uh, so, obviously, GWS got up here in what's considered an upset. Um, but they did... They From all reports, they played really well. How did you guys see that game? Yeah, it was a real um, intense effort for four quarters. And I think that was the big thing you haven't seen in previous years, is that it was a sustained four-quarter effort. It was... You had instances where, say, against Essendon, and I believe against, like, you know, against Collingwood, where last year they showed that the talent, but they didn't necessarily have the fitness or the... Um, the 
physicality to go with a team of four quarters. Yet I think we got the first real four quarter uh, performance from GWS on the weekend. It is a, an embarrassment of riches is coming through up there, and one one. Uh, it does seem like it is working on the basis of the first round. Obviously, it does seem that it worked better than, um, I don't know, than I expect the Tippett and Franklin combination to work at Sydney, to be honest. I certainly think the way that GWS came out, I just looked at them and go, holy shit, these guys have uh, grown a set of balls now and actually playing with a bit of aggression and did the opposite of what they did last year. You know, play good for three quarters and drop away. They played sort of average for three quarters and lifted in the last, and you could just see it in the players. The, the wind was almost in sight even before they hit the lead. So um, one thing I did pick up from that game I thought was quite interesting was, um, was it Addison that used to uh, yeah. play at the uh, Bulldogs? He's slipped in forward, and there's actually a nice little foil or a, sort of a smaller option up there. I certainly never noticed him. I don't know what type of games he played for the Dogs, but he certainly looked a likely type and fitted in well in, in the forward one there. Yeah, look, Addison. Um, he he was an honest player, but he struggled to get into he struggled to find a spot in the team just through the competition. So it, it was a good move for Addison to move up to GWS and and get another opportunity there. But one one has to ask, um, you know, with the embarrassment of riches with uh, Bo- with Boyd, Patton, and uh, Cameron, what happens uh, hypothetically a few years down the track after Boyd's had a few years developing? How do they fit them all? You. Yeah. The, or does GWS go? Sorry, does GWS use one as trade bait for uh, for another position player? The I understand it is that Boyd is being groomed to be a ruckman who goes forward, and will be replaced in the long run. Giles and in the very long run, Mumford, while Patton is the big hulking forward. Um, Cameron is the mobile forward. And Cameron McCarthy gets trained to replace Davis in that uh, mobile ball who goes on the forward rather than the gorilla. Uh, just on growing, uh, Seppo said something about players growing balls. Phil Davis um, deserves a, a particular mention here. I mean, he, he more or less shut down Franklin over the course of the game, but he uh, sustained a pretty severe injury in the first quarter. Yeah, and is is in hospital still as a yeah, result? Um, he's actually still in intensive care, but they're expecting him to get out of the ICU. He's had a bleeding kidney and is expected to still be in hospital at the end of the week. Okay, so is this 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 team then, is this a Leon Cameron team or is this still the leftover of, of Sheedy's reign at uh, GWS? Oh. That's got to be Cameron out there because there's certainly no um, Sheedy-esque moves and positioning and the way they um, played is certainly a newer GWS, certainly not what you saw over the last two seasons. I was going to say, actually, one interesting statistic out of this game uh, goes back to the change uh, for the interchange cap this year and um, I don't know what... uh what uh, Johnny Longmire was thinking, but he only used 90-odd rotations instead of the full 120 complement, and it looked like the players were tiring. What do you make of that? Yeah, they look fairly rusty and um, pretty not like a, a Sydney running game plan, and, and I think it was a case for most of the games. I think Freo and Collingwood were the teams that really got close to using the full um, interchange, but I think all other games, the uh, Gold Coast Richmond, plus the Port and Carlton game, they really didn't use it, so it was Strange to see there wasn't a lot of run and guys really testing it out and pushing to the limits. 
The other one think? that was important for the Giants was that half-hour lightning delay at the end of the first quarter. In effect, we got two half-time breaks, and that had to happen, leaving something in the legs in the last quarter. Mm. What was the timing of it? Was it the, the lightning at the end of the first quarter? That was, was that just as uh, Sydney were getting their run, or were Port starting to come back at that stage? Because I remember sort of commentators talking about killing someone's momentum. Couldn't remember who was up at that time. Yeah. I mean, momentum shifted back and forth in that game. One of the things was that there was a number of periods where Sydney had five or ten minutes of close to dominance, but they couldn't deliver on the scoreboard. Uh, it was very similar to our win against Port Adelaide, where they just couldn't kick stride. And then we had a sniff and ran on with it. OK. Mm. So, uh, do, you, do you think, though, and and with taking into account the break, having an impact on the game, because it's it's well known that it can change the uh, outcome of the game when you're extending another break or having uh, disruptions like that. But with the change of the salary cap, uh, sorry, salary cap, sorry, the rotations on the bench, do you think that Johnny Longmire either spent too much time worrying about it and being overcautious, which hindered Sydney's typical free-running game and its change of players, which I think Sydney is one of those traditional teams that have been using in a high number of rotations, um, or they were just flat on the night because it's just they just certainly looked really odd after quarter time. I think they were flat on the night. I also think that Sydney's stoppage-based style needs two good ruckmen to work to full effect and just Mike Pike couldn't do it. I reckon if you had Buddy going to the Swans and you've still got Mumford at Sydney, then the match would have been very, very different. That's a good point. And also, obviously, with the rust, the way they weren't hitting targets, you just wonder if there's any sort of disharmony or anything out there. Obviously, talking, everyone talking about Buddy coming in, but I wonder if there's any um, different sort of chemistry amongst the team and the way they're playing, because most of it's the similar teams to last year, but you just wonder how they go together and the, and the way they sort of pass it around. And it's, it's interesting just how what would be going on behind the scenes with them and if it's actually causing any problems that's going to translate to on-field. I think they just took the game too easily. I think they just assumed that they would be able to outrun the game and that the Giants had run out of legs, just like's happened every other time they played them. You can guarantee, though, there's going to be no more sides coming against GWS now thinking they're going to take it easy. Yeah. All right, we're going to, yep. move, on. We're going to move on to the last game of the round, guys. We've got a fair bit to get through still when we're running behind time. But uh, Carlton and Port Adelaide at Eddie Hat Oval, uh, Eddie Hat Stadium, Tell you what, that first quarter was very reminiscent of the first four rounds of, or first three or four rounds of the 2012 season for Carlton, wasn't it? It was. It that, was that sort of that false dawn. Uh, everything's looking up, you know. Everything's um, everything's coming up Millhouse, and then bang, Port Adelaide hit their stride, and then by the end of the match, it's a question of where our Carlton actually at. Yeah, Malthouse did say that in the off season, twenty odd players had been through surgery, so there's there's uh, there's some doubt over the fitness of. Half the freaking team, but now, half, now do any of them actually have hearts now? Yeah, is that heart surgery? It's <laughs> look unlike Richmond. Robbie uh, Warnock get his uh, light bulb changed. Unlike Collingwood, <laughs> uh, we didn't get run over completely. We were in it until you know uh, well into the last quarter, but they did they did run over the top of us, and uh, I'm not um, 
there's just a lot of mistakes and a lot of errors were made there and some coaching moves were made too late, in my opinion. Uh, Westhoff always decimates us in defence uh, as a forward. And uh, as soon as he went forward, we were we were lost pretty much because uh, Watson just can't hold him. Watson's just not got the experience or the strength to hold uh, Westhoff and that's where the game was lost, in my opinion. Wookie, what about um, Mick Malthouse and his substitutions? He's always been a bit of a conservative when it comes to that, but I feel like he should have brought Mensling a lot earlier, especially perhaps the start of the third quarter. Instead, he held off well. until the fourth quarter. Mm. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. I'm just not sure who he would have taken out that would have... Um, I, I'm not completely sold on Menzel yet. Like he, yes, he does the enigmatic stuff every now and then, but I think he's still got a way to go before he cements a spot on the side. Obviously, that's why he's a substitute. Um, I'm not entirely sure he could have made a hell of a lot of difference to the side coming on as a sub. And what did you make of so, uh, Daisy's game? He's underdone. Yeah. Vastly underdone. Um, quite evident. And probably needed to come back through the reserves. I think it's going to probably take about four games for Daisy to get back to his best. He's going to blow up in a lot of games, and it was just a fitness. He certainly hasn't lost his skill. He was great in patches, and it just... That's what the seconds the is for, though. Like he shouldn't mm. be doing that in the senior side. You don't, what's, you don't bring. Sorry, you don't bring back an injured player and go. Oh, Jesus! You know, Carazzo is due to come back next week. He hasn't played for you know four months. He's not going to come back straight into the senior side. These guys are going to run around the reserves for a couple of weeks, get their fitness up, and then come in. Um, Thomas shouldn't be any different to that. I don't care how much they paid him, and they overpaid for him. But that's another story altogether. And speaking of fitness, how I, knew, I saw this coming. I sort of, I think I put it out on Twitter at halftime. I said, watch Port come home with a wet sail because I'm not sure what Carlton's fitness like is overall and the players are probably undercooked out there. But the way that Port ran out that game was, it's going to be their trademark move and they're going to catch out a lot of sides that aren't fit and can't run for four quarters because whoever they've got going over there, I think it's Burgess, I think, with yeah. um, their fitness. Um, when Westhoff went berserk, it was all on the back of just surgeons. And that Pollock guy, he was... Um, Brilliant. I mean, I did wonders for my super coach side, but um, I certainly played a, a big interest. And, and the other thing that caught my interest is I had Loby as well as um, my Ruckman and super coach. And watching him go against both Cruiser and so Warnock there, um, he actually were pretty effective. You know, it was two against one, really, as recognised Ruckman. Um, I can't remember the stats, but he certainly looked better and, and done well. He and was more better. Effective. Yeah. I, I, look, I'm, I'm not a big Warnock fan. If you've ever heard any podcasting I've done at all, I'm, I'm not a huge Warnock fan. But uh, neither Cruiser nor Warnock work well in tandem, in my opinion. Um, Cruiser's not a forward, and he should be playing first ruck, and that's how they should leave it. But... Port did really well. Ken Hinckley afterward was saying all about how if you're going to play Port Adelaide, you've got to be prepared to run because that's all we're going to do. We're going to run, and it's going to be run, and you're going to know that you've, you know, you, you, if you're going to play us, you're going to be prepared to run out the game. They've done a lot of work on their fitness. They're going to run over a lot of teams that aren't prepared for it. It'll be in, um, interesting to see how that running-based style and the interchange cap work. I think it's going to help Port Adelaide because if they can keep players out there longer that don't need their rest, they're certainly going to benefit and they won't hit that. I don't know if many clubs are actually going to get close to having to slow down their rotations towards the end of the game, but they can certainly keep guys out there longer and push the opposition harder 
when they're going head-to-head and actually bursting away from packs. It's going to definitely help them. Well, I'll put to you guys this. Would Joe Watson get drafted in today's game? Who? Would Joe Watson get drafted in today's game? I'd, I'd think so. I would as think so As in from where he was in 2002 when he was actually drafted. I honestly don't. If you, honestly, if you with the benefit of hindsight, obviously you get drafted. But what I'm saying is, as that raw 18 year old who you know has got a bit of puppy fat and all that sort of stuff, he, he just wouldn't get drafted. And I think that's the the great slight of this interchange cap is that we're going to be forced to pick athletic uh, types ahead of footballers. I, I actually think that there's a second thing simultaneously happening, which is the return of the gorilla. Um, in Patton and Hogan, you've got two gorilla full forwards that are going to need gorillas to stand next to them. Otherwise, they'll just smash packs all day and people will play booted to the big bloke. I think you're also going to see the return of the very old-fashioned bloke having a breather in the forward pocket. Um, I think we will adapt tactically to having players that have fewer, longer times off the field. And I think we'll see the return of the bloke having a breather in the forward pocket. And if you want to run away from him, that's fine. You've now got a two-on-one in the goal square. Mm. <laughs> All right, guys, very quickly, your tips for the coming weekend, Geelong-Adelaide. I'm going Geelong. Yeah. Geelong. Yep. Uh, I'm North- actually going Adelaide. Ooh. Yeah. This is I a skilled stadium on Thursday night. Yeah, yeah. I just think Adelaide might... Was an upset for this one. I think the Bets and Pods, the Adley show, might turn it on. <laughs> mm. Could do. Uh, Friday, we've got North Melbourne and Essendon. North Melbourne getting a Friday game, so we might put a pay to that, whinging for a while. I want to see Essendon beat North after North leading all game. Yeah, I'm in two minds about this. It's fun to watch North lose games by close margins, but it is Essendon. So... Is there a roof? Of course there's a roof. <laughs> is it shut? I will be for Friday night. So, Chris Scott uh, will let you know. What's that? Brad Scott will let you know if it's yes. open or not. <laughs> you can tell by the tears. Uh, Saturday afternoon, Hawthorne and Brisbane at York Park. Oh, I'll have to tip Hawthorne for that one in Tasmania. You'd think so. I think Hawthorne it's almost a fortune. Although, you know, I, I, I don't expect it to be a walkover. Um, I think Brisbane are going to have a uh, be a lot more competitive this year than what they were last year. Saturday night. Like- the blockbuster at Eddie Had Stadium between St Kilda and Melbourne. I'm tipping Melbourne there by a small margin. I think Saints have too many missing. Um, played a different type of year, but I think when you look at who they're missing, Montagna, Hayes, um, I think possibly Fisher missing, Gilbert, a couple. I think Melbourne will get up yeah. for Ruzi in the first game. I'm chalking it, yeah, chalking up Melbourne for their first win. I'm, tip, I'm tipping lowest crowd of the round. Hmm. Lower than the 17k at uh, Spotless. Yep. Geez, that's a. Uh, oh, no, I think all the Melbourne team, Melbourne teams. I think Melbourne will get a lot of supporters. I think it'll be in the 20k mark. Oh, actually, yeah, good point. I'm, uh, I'm uh, going to back the draw. And actually, Hawthorne Brisbane will get a pretty low crowd because it's at York Park. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Hawthorne Brisbane will get more than 17k at York Park. And uh, last game of the round, uh, West Coast and the Bulldogs at uh, oh, Patterson Stadium. Like to- yeah, I would like to tip the Bulldogs, but I think reality says West Coast. Um, I, I'm not expecting a huge win, but I think you know a couple of goals will be enough to 
to get West Coast across the line. Mike, I'm actually uh, tipping Bulldogs myself, and I'm quite confident you'll beat the Eagles. I, I think their um, pre-season wasn't really that crash hot, and I think your midfield is way better than theirs, and that's where you're going to win the game. Prosecutor, um, since this is the first time we've had you on this year, and uh, I just want to get your feel for the Essendon situation so far this year. Yeah, look, I think... Um... I want to say no new ground's been broken, but a lot has. It's one of those things where um, everything that comes out seems significant and then ultimately nothing in the grand picture has actually happened yet. Obviously, um, Stephen Dang's show notice is uh, one of the first steps towards something actually happening. Um, and, of course, the players' names coming out was probably the other big issue that's come of this year. But at this stage, until we actually get some clarity on what those 34 show notices were for. Not a lot really... There's not a lot really you can talk about beyond pure speculation. I mean, I'm happy... Do you want to talk about the names being released? Yeah, well, what what were your thoughts on the names being released? I mean, uh, there's all sorts of talk about... Um, like, uh, oh, I can't remember the word I'm looking for. Uh, confidentiality. Confidi- yep. uh, confidentiality agreements and, you know, uh, Mark Robinson being absolutely lampooed for releasing them and and, and, and all sorts of things. But, um, I mean, what's what's your perspective on that? Well, first of all, I do sympathise with Mark Robinson to an extent. I don't believe it was his call to put it to print. And I think he found out. I think um, our friend Sweet Left Foot made the observation that Robbo found out for the first time that being chief football writer for the biggest newspaper in the country is not all drinking, pissing on functions. Mm. Um, but at the same time, he's put his byline on it and he's got to live by that. Um, as for confidentiality, look, I believe there is confidentiality and that has to be, um, that has to be respected, but the, the matter is where did, who actually broke the confidentiality and... That's where it gets murky. That's what I don't understand. They said there were like 50 copies of this confidential document distributed. Yeah, well, the fine confidential then. (laughs) That's not really that confidential, is it? (laughs) No, it's not. But then at the same time, you've got to... I guess the question is who actually leaked it. I mean, you know, for instance, I know some people say it was sort of like a false flag by the club. But, I mean then in that case, it's not really leaking confidential information if mm. they're doing it themselves. But, I mean, at the same time, for the players, are, you know, they shouldn't have to have their... I mean, they haven't been charged. They haven't been issued any show course notices. I mean, if it got to that stage and their names were released, then that's a different matter. But at this stage, they're being painted with a brush where they haven't even been asked to explain themselves really yet. Which does lead us to the show cause notices that were issued to Stephen Dank. What's uh, what's your take on that? Look, the 34 charges is concerning. Obviously, I don't believe, and I think all of you would agree with this, that um, they don't. They're not 34 instances of players. Like 34 won't exactly, you know, necessarily be the number of players who could potentially be under the gun, because there's stuff like trafficking, possession, and all that sort of stuff, and the on the side stuff with coaches and officials. But obviously, yeah, you do have to be concerned. This isn't some 
this is obviously the first step towards an infraction notice being issued for not just Stephen Dank, but officials and players. Uh, whether they will happen or not, it obviously remains to be seen, and it, we still do need to see the clarity in what those 34, shown, um, 34 alleged um, alleged transgressions against the code are. Just before but I, you can't help but be concerned. Just before I let the other guys have a crack at you, James Hurd did an interview, what, the same day Tom, Bomber Thompson was doing an uh, interview for the um, the club season launch? What's, uh, um, what's with that? Probably a bit of unfortunate timing, but then again, I don't think I don't really see why it was necessary to bring Hurt onto the, the hangar. I, I don't see the positive to come out of it, especially when it's the first week of the season coming up. Apparently, uh, AFL approval I don't know and everything. You, so. I don't know if you lot have seen on the Essendon board. Um, I don't know whether you guys lurk there or not, but in particular, there's been a bit of discussion recently generated by the Hurt interview. Uh, I mean, I've been having a debate myself and with uh, a few other regular resident supporters about the merits of Herd coming back or not. And it's that sort of um, conversation that's been generated by this Herd interview. And as you say, um, Bomber Thompson had his press conference that morning going on about how, you know, this was his team and he was looking forward to coaching again and being back in the hot seat. So unfortunate timing. Personally, if I was in charge, I wouldn't have done the hurt interview, I wouldn't have bothered, I don't see what the positive out of it is, mm. except, of course, views on the um, show, but that's just me. Yeah, all right, chaps. Well, the way that I look at it is, um, obviously, the fans and the supporters, diehards, obviously, want to see herd still around the club, and I can imagine that's the sentiment for many people out there, but I think, really, the club would be aiming to put Bomber's name and face out there, and if he's going to be in the spotlight all in the media all year, surely they're going to want to put him out there as the sort of head figure of the club rather than Heard. And the question will be, that was, you know, the one-off um, thing before the start of the season, will we actually see Heard around or mention much or get other media bits and pieces through the rest of the season? Or is that it, his one little appearance to appease the fans and he's cut off until he returns in August? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I don't think we'll hear it from her in the next four months. I think you'll be an anonymous figure unless, of course, Asada preempt that and, you know, raise all hell again. But I would think that Bomber Thompson should be the face of the club. They've certainly portrayed that over the last few months and Bomber's making every effort to do that, um, to bring her back into the mix this early even. I don't know... The, the whole landscape could be very much different in August and you worry about that then. But for now, I just saw it as money in the waters and I just stick with Thompson, let it be Thompson's team, let the players, the supporters have that security of knowing that it is Thompson and just move on into the season. I think it's just an unnecessary distraction. And the big thing is, what would the perception be of both Bomber and Heard come August that either Essendon are entrenched in the top four or they're lingering at the bottom of the ladder, how will each person actually be seen and, and what they've done in that time? Yeah, look, well, I guess that's a how it seemed to have done in that time is a difficult question, especially when you've got Heard in his situation. Um, I think there could well be, depending on how the season goes, there could well be a, um, a few hard decisions to be made at the end of the season. Now, personally, I'd like Bomber to coach on. Um, I've made no secret that I think Heard, for the betterment of the club, should move on. But at this stage, Heard's adamant that he wants to come back. 
the the club's sticking by that and until otherwise I guess we're just gonna let it play out and what happens in August happens in August. There's no use speculating about it now because there's a long season ahead, there's a lot of unknowns to be resolved and football should be the focus at the moment. Regarding... But in all serious sorry, in all serious I was gonna say who who would take Hurd, where would Hurd go? I think he's tainted as a coach, um, because of what's happened. Um, irrespective of the outcome, I think he's not going to be uh, in a position to be able to uh, get, a, get a gig at another club besides Essendon. Yeah, look, I think um, I, that's one of the primary reasons I was frustrated when Paul Little announced on the day of the settlement that purpose receiving a two-year extension. Now, obviously, that was prearranged with the deal, but at the same time, no, it's similar with Nathan Buckley and similar with Brad Scott at North Melbourne. These coaches who have been signed up to an extension before their contracts run out, where no other club's going to go after them. I mean, obviously, Hurd's a bit of a different story, but again, he's similar that no other club's going to be after him. So I'm a bit frustrated that we have re-signed him. And for Hurd, I mean, as you say, if you, he's only really got Essendon. And... Yeah. and the reason he's probably still only got Essendon is by virtue of the Essendon fans being so emotionally invested in him. So having said that, I don't think his earning power in a corporate sense has diminished that much at all. I think he's always going to be able to find work. I think he's always going to be able to find money. But obviously within the football industry, it's either Essendon or bust at this stage. What's your thinking on why didn't Essendon seek an injunction for the unjust publications of the players' names and some of the details of what the information they'd provided to Asada. That was the bit that surprised me, is not that the Herald Sun published the names of the players involved, but that Essendon didn't even seem to seek an injunction to stop them doing it. Well, I guess that raised some speculation both amongst Essendon fans and amongst those obviously on the Hot Topic board and in the outer as well is, oh, I guess it wasn't so much the injunction not being sought, but it was the language used by Paul Little and the club where they, strong, uh, they strongly detested the publication of the names but were almost silent as to criticising of the source of the names. Yeah, because, so, I mean, to me, if you'd have gone to a judge, sought an injunction, and been told it's called a free press son, you get to go to the players and the fans and say, we tried. But, yeah, and look, I don't know, and I don't know the um, what did happen behind closed doors. I don't know the timeline of when they found out what the decision was and why and why not they decided to whatever. But... As you say, it'd be one of those things that you think they just go tick it off, or you know they might have even got legal advice saying no, it wouldn't work, so just didn't bother. I don't yeah. know, but I mean, it does. Of course, it does lead to speculation. But I think we've learned from this saga is that every little tidbit leads to spe- uh, leads to speculation. Guys, it's been a pleasure having you all on. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, thanks to Mike, and uh, thank you very much to the prosecutor, um, Ian. No, no, thank you very much all for your input. And, no uh, Thanks, guys. We will You're welcome. S- Have a good night. We will see you all on the forums. Okay. Don't do-